Hi everyone, Edie's Content Director Luke here with the very exciting announcement that this brand new podcast series, Sustainability Uncovered, is being hosted in partnership with Lloyds Bank. We're delighted to have Lloyds Bank involved as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank work with clients not only to help finance the transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome to the brand new season of the ED Podcast, broadcast in partnership with Lloyds Bank. It's the week ending Friday the 21st of October and this is Sustainability Uncovered, the show for anyone and everyone working in or passionate about sustainability and climate action. Coming up in today's show, the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit give us their take on the UK's readiness to hand over the COP27 presidency next month. The whole of the world is there and, and, and able to have their voice heard and it is incredibly important when that is made easier by being, uh, by being hosted um, outside of Europe, away from the richest and most powerful countries historically. And that should, of course, ensure that those voices are, are even better heard. We hear from our podcast partner Lloyds Bank on how COP27 can unlock new streams of climate finance. There's been a great level of collaboration and learning since Glasgow, and I really hope that also will continue. It is absolutely inevitable that we will face challenges, like the Ukrainian conflict, for example. But therefore, it's even more important we don't slow down the transition as we try to solve them. And we speak with an Indigenous Climate Action Coordinator from Guyana about making sure all voices from across the Global South are heard at the upcoming Climate Summit. That's all we hear about when we talk about climate change. You know, you, you see it in school and school curriculum, but rarely you would hear people talking about how it's already impacting our indigenous peoples who live off the land, our indigenous peoples who live in the forests and the savannas, because they cannot plan effectively now, because of course the weather patterns have changed. Plus, we'll be talking the future of ESG, there's a top of the cops quiz, and a vegan birthday bash. All of that and more covered in this week's episode of Sustainability Uncovered. So yes, hello and welcome along to Sustainability Uncovered. You're listening right now to the silky, slightly echoey tones of Edie's content director, Luke Nichols. And I'm excited to say that after six years of podcasting, Edie has leveled up because uh, the regular Edie listeners among you will have noticed uh, we have a brand new show title. Uh, We used to be called Sustainable Business Covered and it's a, a subtle name change, but we thought it was about time. We want the show to be a bit more encompassing as we now look to uncover some of the most inspiring and exciting sustainability and climate action stories from across the globe. And that's not all. We have some funky new show music, which you've probably just heard. And most excitingly, we have a a brand new podcast studio, which has been purpose-built for for us here at Edie's headquarters in West Sussex in in the UK. Um, Edie's content editor, Matt Mace, uh, you're sat here with me now. Matt, how does it feel to to finally have your own studio? Uh, It's been uh, on my Christmas list for many uh, many a year now. So, you know, it feels feels professional. And that's not to say what we were doing before wasn't professional, but, Mm. you know, fact that you can kind of see uh, normally you would see a producer by the laptops kind of letting us know how it's all going and we're here with our green screen in the background you know it's a, it's a big big studio I was expecting a little kind of little box to kind of get huddled away in but it's um, you know it's, I mean it's probably 
about the same size as my bedroom, which I realise isn't actually a reference for anyone because no one knows the size. At least I hope they don't know the size of my bedroom. But you know, it's, it's a it's, it's a big, wide room. Um, so I, I like it. I like it. Mm. Yeah, I should explain. We're kind of in a nice, big, airy studio kind of room that's only literally just been kind of redeveloped. It used to be office spaces and got the clear glass windows with, the sh with the, all the editing software behind that, a big green screen, as Matt says, which I think in future may offer opportunities for uh, vodcasts, but we're not quite there yet. Don't forget the moss. Yes, and there's, I'm sat next to some moss, which I think is kind of meant to muffle the echoiness, but I think we need more of it. Um, so yeah, stay tuned. We'll just put a picture up alongside the podcast. So um, yeah, I think on the subject of feeling brand new, I, I'm personally feeling, well, I would say I wouldn't say brand new, but a bit refreshed. Um, I've been away for the last week or so, Matt. I know you've been off for a few days. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to say I'm feeling brand new, and I was hoping I'd come back to this podcast and be able to say that. But the jet, jet lag has left me feeling otherwise because I'm still, you know, waking up at 5 a.m. every morning. Um, I did. I finally took some holiday. Um, decided to use up a, a decade's worth of uh, personal carbon footprinting by taking a trip across to Thailand. Uh, I did say stay in a, a self-proclaimed eco-resort though on a tiny little island. Um, but yeah, it was great to disconnect and reconnect with nature in many ways. Um, but anyway, enough of my self-indulgence because there is uh, truly nothing I'd rather come back to than a podcast recording with you guys because we're also joined here in the studio by Edie's senior reporter, Sarah George, who uh, regular listeners will know as our usual podcast chair. But for this new season, we're mixing things up a bit. Sarah, Hello, how does it feel to relinquish the, the podcast chairing reins? I like to be in control, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I feel a bit like, you know, when you're in the kitchen and you've got a hot pan and someone comes in behind you and you're like, oh, well, that smells good, what are you making? Um, but I'm sure it will pass. I'm delighted to have you both back on the podcast more regularly. Yeah, I thought Sarah's been a bit hard, hard done by, personally. It feels like you should kind of grab the reins and take yourself. Absolutely, I, feel, yeah. I can smell mutiny brewing between me and Sarah by the end of this episode. Yeah, well, I mean, it's been too long now that I've, you know, I've been away. You guys have been... <laughs> in the spotlight for too long we've I had some like time to, to plan back. Luke yeah um, it might not be for too long because if this all goes terribly wrong with the new equipment next door then um, you'll be back on this side of the mic I can assure you so for this brand new podcast series we are going to be covering off a huge range of sustainability and, and climate topics for each episode but for this first episode we're starting with something a bit different because it's a very special episode and we're going to be focusing exclusively on COP27 this is, of course, the Global Climate Summit, which is literally just around the corner. It's not literally just around the corner. I suppose that's like Sainsbury's in the garage. Um, metaphorically around the corner because the 27th Conference of the Parties, or COP, is taking place from the 6th to the 18th of November in Egypt, Sharm el-Sheikh. Is it just me, or does it feel like only a month ago that it was COP26 in Glasgow? Anyway, the timing of this COP is absolutely crucial because we're, of course, facing and, and work operating in a very turbulent backdrop right now with various crises across climate, health, energy, war. Um, but Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, and spiraling energy costs have in fact pushed decarbonisation and sustainability up the agenda as a kind of long-term solution to the climate crisis. And the agenda at COP um, will therefore broadly principally be focused on, on climate change and the solutions to it. And it follows on, of course, from COP26, which concluded with the Glasgow Climate Pact. Um, that was the that agreements uh, which moved some of the issues on um, and acknowledged some uh, insufficient progress on others, um, continued to build momentum from the Paris Agreement and was thought to be enough to keep 1.5 degrees alive just. Now, we were, of course, up in Glasgow for pretty much all of COP26 12 months ago. Um, Matt, 
cast your mind back to that time in our sort of student flat turned mm-hmm. okay. office. Um, that was your first, it was all of our first in-person mm-hmm. cop. Mm-hmm. What were your main reflections from it? It was big, very big, but very cr- crowded. Like it was, it was too big in a too small venue, if that makes sense. Like <laughs> the, the Blue Zone was just this like hive of just activity. And it was easy to get lost, very easy to not understand what was going on where. I'm entirely sure you, you're in the blue zone, but you don't have all access to every part of the blue zone. It was, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was manic, like the working long hours, um, just to try and get everything done. But it was, it was brilliant. Like I don't want to make it sound like I wasn't glad I was there. It was um, just being in the heart of the conversations, being able to soak up the the atmosphere, and and by atmosphere I mean it was completely different to the kind of very somber discussions that were happening in the kind of plenaries. Um, there was a I don't want to say a festival atmosphere, but there was, you know, it was a, a coming together of all these different countries, all these different stakeholders. And it felt like there was a lot of good progress being made there. The Glasgow Comet Pack wasn't as strong as what we needed it to be, but it was strong enough for us to be able to take another step forward in what we're trying to do uh, as, a, as, a, as a planet, which is to save the planet. So, yeah, it was, it was great. I'll, I'll be completely honest, I do still t- sometimes have nightmares of just being trapped in the media zone uh, with nothing but an iron brew to, to kind of get me through the night. But, um, no, uh, an experience I won't forget. That's for yeah. Sure. Sarah, how about you? Good cop, bad cop? I mean, Matt said it all in terms of um, atmosphere. It was just knowing that everyone that we write for really was there at some point mm. and just knowing that you were among the conversation and among... Um, the community. I've not eaten any leek and potato soup since, purely because I ate so much in the media zone it w- to try and keep warm. Um, all in all, as Matt said, the final agreement wasn't enough to do what we needed it to do. And while people have said 1.5 is alive, it's also been caveated with, well, it's on life support. Mm-hmm. Um, and while you mentioned that in some ways people are talking about more clean energy, um, in other ways there's talks about, well, how long can we temporarily prolong coal? Um, and don't we just go hard, hard on economic growth at the expense of the environment to fix the economy? Mm. Um, so it's it's been a good cop and a bad cop. Yeah, it was a bit of both, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. You've teed us up nicely there to start looking ahead um, around the corner to COP27. You've mentioned there the kind of coal, and I think that that's obviously one aspect of, of what we're looking for in this COP in, regard, in regards to mitigation, certainly avoiding reducing emissions. I think there are kind of three or four key areas of COP27 that I think the world and certainly the sustainability um, function is looking at in particular. That is mitigation, I think, adaptation, of course, so adjusting systems in response to to climate change, climate finance, which we'll be addressing later in this episode. So that's financing, particularly from developed nations to developing nations to support climate action. And then there's addressing loss and damage. um, So the negative impacts of climate change that's happening today, which is ultimately a major injustice, I guess, for our our generation. So anyway, rather than uh, me and us continuing to give our reflections or look ahead, it might be about time to bring in some climate experts in on this one. So Matt and Sarah, you've been busy this week um, speaking with a hand-picked selection of experts from the UK, from Europe, the Global South. I believe we've got three interviews in total. And Matt, I think we're going to start with you. What have you got for us? So we're going to start with a kind of... um I suppose look back as well as look ahead. Um, obviously, the UK is still uh, holding the presidency 
uh, of, of confidence negotiations about to hand over to Egypt um, very shortly. And the those those kind of, I suppose, duties didn't stop at COP26. They've been, uh, Alok Sharma and his team have been quite diligent, I think, with considering everything that's been happening in UK politics, uh, going around engaging with other nations, trying to get new countries, existing countries, to to ratchet up their ambitions, actually. So we're going to kind of uh, talk to the ECIU. Um, Gareth and King has uh, been there for about 18 months, I think, now. Um, so would have come in in the build-up to COP26 and is now there now as their international lead. Um, and Gareth is going to talk to me, yeah, basically just to look at back at how, you know, whether the UK will be remembered fondly, not just for COP26, but how it's handled the presidency, as well as a look ahead to whilst this COP in Egypt isn't, as monumental as Glasgow in the sense that there's not going to be this big shiny new package or pact come through it, but it can still be an extremely important cop in terms of getting that message going and keeping the momentum. Mm. So let's hear that chat then with uh, Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit's International Lead, Gareth Redmond-King, in full. Uh, so firstly, Gareth, uh, thank you for joining me. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yes, yeah, good, thank you. Um, it's kind of all systems go for us at Edie as we kind of prepare for, for COP27 and rather stupidly I've, I've used in the next few weeks to take some annual leave. So I'm um, <laughs> kind of juggling a lot of things, but uh, it's, it's um, yeah, it, it's it's good to finally be gearing up to, to COP27 in it's that fine. sense. But you've now been at the ECIU for around a year and a half, I think, um, and you, yeah. for, um, for our listeners that perhaps on the way, you previously held positions at WF UK and then um, more formally than that, the now defunct uh, Department of Energy and Climate Change. So, so um, ECIU for around 18 months or so, what has what your kind of focus and, and remit been since joining there and how have you found it? So, um, well, I've, I've hugely enjoyed it, is the first thing to say, um, and um, hope, hope still to be here for a while longer. Um, uh, we are about trying to inform uh, debate and discussion around climate and energy, um, particularly focused in the UK. But my role is focused more internationally. It was set up originally last year to focus on COP26. Of course, with COP26 being hosted in the UK, there was um, there was p- very particular interest in it. Um, but my focus remains on international climate issues as they relate to the UK and as the UK relates to them. Well, that actually brings me um, nicely on to what I want to discuss for, for the majority of this interview, and that is how I suppose the UK has, has handled um, its, its preparation as, as uh, presidency. Because obviously that, that, conti- that has continued post COP26. Um, we were speaking off air about um, how Alex Sharma, the COP26 president, has spent much of the year kind of travelling to delegations, trying to commit other countries to raise their ambitions and they obviously hand over um, the official COP26 presidency to Egypt shortly. Yeah. Um, and we've seen um, this week some stories emerge pretty much overnight that Alex Sharma has called for both Prime Minister Liz Truss and King Charles to, to be able to attend the event in Egypt uh, next month in some yeah. capacity. More broadly, with all the turmoil that's happened in British politics since COP26, how, how do you feel that the UK will be remembered um, in terms of having to lead and ignite and, and steer international conversations around climate change as it prepares to hand over the, the reins to, to Egypt? I think it'll be remembered fairly well and with uh, some degree of respect, not and, you know, in very large part, I think that is down to Alok Sharma and the job that he has done as COP president. I think COP26 was reasonably successful. It did move things on. It did build on momentum from Paris. It did land, um, you know, a a fairly detailed uh, 
agreements in the form of the Glasgow Climate Pact um, that moved a number of things on. Of course, it fell short on on some things, but the the sense of momentum, the sense of what the UK had done by bringing together um, a lot of countries into those sector pledges uh, around making progress on things like deforestation, methane, uh, electric vehicles and whatnot. Um, I think I think the, the sense on the whole was that COP26 um, did a decent job in moving things on, even if it didn't, uh, you know, perhaps achieve everything that everybody wanted of it. The the more difficult thing that's um, the more difficult thing to see, um, particularly with or, or perhaps perhaps only with with with, with quite a long uh, stretch of hindsight, is how well the presidency does after the COP. Um, Alok Sharma has given the sense of being immensely busy this year, as you say, shuttling around, um, being part of international conversations, those bilateral conversations with with countries to to, to try and drive progress, and from time to time speaking out. Um, calling on people to to get their act together at g20 meetings earlier this year um he was quite strident in saying that there was a risk of of nations backsliding so i think he has been reasonably effective and of course the difficulty for him is that he has been doing this job um against a backdrop of political turmoil in the uk um and you know a change of not actual governments but a change of leadership of the government um and with 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 lots of um conversations around things like the gas price crisis and what the solutions to that might be that have perhaps uh, muddied the waters on the very good uh, progress that the UK still, it is fair to say, has made on on cutting emissions. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've covered more um, high level politics announcements, cabinets, reshuffles that that like in the last um in the last kind of eight months than, than perhaps I would uh, would have liked to. But um, it was when I was kind of searching around writing the articles, the one kind of constant was that kind of Sharma was very much untouched yeah. in that position. I, I, I don't know the formality behind it. I imagine it wouldn't make sense to change a cop president's part of the cabinet reshuffle anyway. But the fact that he was always just that, that, that constant seemed a bit kind of reassuring, at least for those international I th- climate I think, aspects. I th- I think so. And the fact that um, during his tenure as COP president, um, Patricia Espinosa has uh, finished her term as executive secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, the, the bit that governs the COPs. Um, and during the course of discussing who would replace her, Alok Sharma was talked about uh, as a potential candidate. And I think that speaks reasonably well to um, the reputation he has amongst uh, amongst other nations. Yeah, definitely. I, I remember um, as the kind of gavel came down on the Glasgow Climate Pact, you know, he did seem genuinely um, emotional about um, what wasn't particularly included. You know, this, mm. this seems like a, a kind of uh, project of passion for him as well, yeah. which is always good to see. Um, yeah. But away from, from him, as I mentioned, there has been a lot of uh, changes in turmoil to the UK. And there was very much, you know, we, we, we kind of championed ourselves as, as leaders in, in the climate space. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first obviously, major countries to legislate for net zero. Right. And we, we've obviously been engaging with other nations to do just that. And part of the Glasgow Climate Pact is to get nations to kind of revisit their targets. But in terms of the UK, we, we, we've obviously got this net zero review coming but um and it's, it's very much staying in place but there's been a lot of talk that we're perhaps starting to backslide on some aspects around um that kind of gas crisis that you mentioned and how we're approaching that do you do you feel that the uk is currently doing enough in terms of kind of walking the walk uh on climate policies and that there's a danger that others may look at us and, and be tempted to also slip back a little bit i think i think it's i think it's important that you said walking the walk because that is different from talking the talk and some 
of what can give the impression of the UK backsliding at the moment is talking the talk, talking about getting more oil and gas out of the North Sea, talking about fracking. Um, even if we get to the stage of um, further licenses for more oil and gas from the North Sea, even if we get to, you know, beyond beyond protests and, and planning applications to a point where there is fracking, those things are not going to solve the gas price crisis. Those things are not going to move the markets. They're not going to add significantly to the UK's supplies. So they're not actually part of the solution to uh, the energy price crisis. The most evident uh, and obvious set of solutions to um, the energy price crisis are climate solutions. They are renewables. They're clean, cheap um, power generation. They are energy efficiency um, to cut our use of energy. And on those measures, the UK is not uh, backsliding. The UK hasn't stopped um, uh, hasn't, hasn't stopped its commitment to uh, expanding renewable generation. In fact, in the uh, now infamous uh, budget the other week, um, one of the one of the announcements that came through that was was removing the sort of the de facto um, ban on onshore wind. Um, that was uh, personally um, very uh, that was very welcome news to me because. Uh, that ban was the last thing I worked on in the Department for Energy and Climate Change before I uh, left, thinking that that wasn't what I wanted to be doing. Um, so that was very good news. And that indicates that the UK remains committed to um, renewables. The the boiler upgrade scheme indicates that the UK government understands that um, decarbonising heat in our homes uh, needs to be done and needs to be done fast. So there's clearly so much more that still needs to be done. There's so much evidence that um, had we been... Um, retrofitting uh, decent energy efficiency measures into UK homes and building new homes to higher standards, we would be using less gas now. Um, the bills would be lower um, and we would be in a better position. So, you know, that should indicate that there is, um, you know, backsliding is not uh, a good idea domestically or internationally. Yeah, that's that's very good to hear. Good to reassuring that, you know, we are we are still um, forging ahead on that. And with COP27, um, being in Egypt and it's, it's a real chance for, I suppose, the, the global south to, to kind of get their voice across. I, I spoke to, um, Elizabeth Wafuti at the start of the year and, and, uh, the, the, the activist, um, Kenya activist and, and she said the, the important thing about COP27 is to get the voices of those that are on the front line of the climate crisis, the ones that are being impacted by it every day. And, and we're seeing, you know, there's some real pressure across some countries. Um, you know, Senegal found a huge kind of, I think it's a huge kind of oil reserve and there, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's temptations to, to, for them to tap into that because of the economic, the short term economic boom it would deliver. Um, we've COP27 rapidly approaching. How important is it that we, um, that we do get the voices of that global south much more front and center in order to make the next conference a success? I mean, it's it, it, it's clearly immensely important. And one of the great uh, va- one of the most valuable things about um, COPS is that it is not just, uh, you know, it's not just a meeting room where the um, the rich and powerful get to speak. It is uh, a very big meeting room where all nations get to speak and where, you know, just outside the door of the meeting room uh, are representatives of young people, uh, young people's groups, campaigners, indigenous people's um, uh, businesses, you know, the, the, the whole of the whole of the world is there and, and, and able to have their voice heard. And it is incredibly important when that is made easier by being uh, by being hosted um, outside of Europe, away from the, the richest and, and most um, 
uh, powerful countries historically. Um, and, and, and that should, of course, ensure that those voices are, are even better heard. Um, there are voices from some African nations around uh, around the urgency of exploiting um, uh, new reserves of oil and gas, of course, um, and that's understandable in um, nations that are looking to the economic development that um, European and North American nations uh, have fueled with, with fossil fuels. But there are also very strident, um, powerful voices um, for the um, the clean transition, for 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 the clean power revolution, um, new presidents, um, newly elected um, president in Kenya um, is one of those. Just a couple of days ago, um, talking about uh, African countries skipping um, legacy technologies and going for the cheaper, cleaner, um, more sustainable um, solutions. And of course, if we if we wanted, if we needed um, reminder as to why it's so important that those voices from um, the Global South are heard loud and clearly at um, COPs, we need look no further than Pakistan um, and the devastation mm-hmm. caused by um, climate intensified flooding there. Um, that you know, a country which a country with very low emissions, very very low historic emissions and low per capita emissions, um, uh, you know reaping some of the worst uh, impacts from climate change um, as it's been driven by, you know, emissions from much bigger and much wealthier nations. Yeah, no, absolutely. You make a, a really important point there at the end about that, that kind of, uh, I remember there was a few reports years ago about the kind of countries having to deliver their fair share of solutions. It was very much the emphasis of developed countries to, to assist in that, in that sense. And um, I suppose that brings me nicely on to my uh, last question, um, Gareth, which is, in, in your opinion, you know, in your role as international ECIE, what, what does success look like at COP27? At COP26, obviously, it would be the formation of that Glasgow climate yeah. team that wasn't perfect. But, but this is going to be a slightly different COP in that sense. So what does success look like to you? I think I think it's always hard to say what success looks like um, at a COP, um, not least because, you know, the, the the, the true and the truest and broadest answer is, you know, is momentum and progress. It's it's keeping um, it's keeping things moving in the right direction. It's 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 keeping emissions going down. It's keeping uh, investments in um, uh, in the solutions going up. It's keeping the flow of uh, increasing the flow of finance um, to to poorer countries who need um, help to deal with the loss and damage caused by climate change. So it's a very it's a very sort of broad thing about um, momentum and progress and. And, and keeping the window open for us to keep warming to 1.5 degrees. But in any given specific COP, um, obviously there are specific outcomes that, that are expected. This COP, COP27, it's not kind of, as it were, uh, a landmark COP. That's not to say it couldn't make uh, momentous decisions and become a landmark COP, but it is not set up in advance, as it were, as a landmark COP. There isn't uh, a set of deliverables due at the COP. COP26 um, was taking receipt of new emissions pledges of new NDCs, uh, nationally determined contributions. Um, you know, COP21 in Paris uh, famously was about, uh, you know, landing what has become known as the Paris Agreement. Um, this COP is midway through some fairly significant processes. So the the it's midway through the, the two-year global stock take um, process, which of course comes to an end in 2023 um, at, at COP28. It's midway through the Glasgow Dialogue, which was initiated last year on loss and damage. So there aren't, as it were, a set of big deliverables. That said, 
there are obviously always uh, a bunch of technical negotiations still going on. There are still things to be um, negotiated and sorted out on Article 6. And please don't ask me about the detail of Article 6. I will get my head around it before COP, but I don't have my head around it yet. Um, but uh, and clearly we will, you know, it is always important that, that more nations are coming forward with more ambitious emissions pledges. It's disappointing that only 23 nations, I think, um, submitted uh, updated NDCs in advance of the UN's deadline last month. But that doesn't mean there isn't momentum. It doesn't mean that stuff isn't happening in countries that haven't submitted um, updated NDCs. Some of the biggest emitters in the world, China and the US, spending huge amounts of money, um, committing huge amounts of money to climate solutions, investing in renewables um, on, on a huge scale, but have not yet updated um, NDCs this year. So there is momentum without that. And the one thing that I think very clearly will be seen uh, as a bit of a litmus test, as a bit of a success and failure measure at COP27 will be progress on loss and damage. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was it, it was disappointing uh, and concerning for many um, poorer and developing nations, you know, particularly those most vulnerable to climate impacts, that there was so little progress on loss and damage at Glasgow, that there was the commitment um, for this this two years of dialogue was the only progress that was really made. And so some sort of tangible progress towards agreement on what is known as a finance facility for loss and damage um, will be, uh, I think, an important measure of success and progress at COP27. Gareth, thank you. That was an extremely fire answer. And yeah, don't worry, no no follow-ups on Article 6. I'm just as uh, lost as as, as most people on on that. Um, So thank you so much for your time. Very welcome. Very good to speak to you. Great stuff. Uh, thank you very much to Gareth, and I'm sure we'll be catching up with, with him and the ECIU again in, in a month's time, and perhaps even at COP27 if we can get out there, but that's a discussion in itself. Um, okay, so that's the UK kind of perspective vantage point on, on COP. We're now going to be talking uh, the crucial topic of climate finance. Uh, many say this is the big issue which needs to be properly resolved um, at COP27. And who better to talk to us about finance than uh, a banking giant? Because, Sarah, I believe you caught up with our podcast partners, Lloyd's Bank. Uh, is that right? I did. So I was lucky enough to have some time in the calendar with Jonas, who heads up their ESG um, work. So, yeah, ties back nicely to that story that I've shamelessly um, been plugging, looking at climate finance. Um, we've mentioned as well that there are many forms of climate finance. There's those big international flows from development banks. Um, there is venture capital, but of course, the banks, mm. your high street banks, um, have a major role to, to play in that as well. And it was great to get his views on how how exactly they can do that and where they personally are getting involved. Mm. Okay, so uh, Jonas Person is uh, Lloyds Bank's Managing Director of Sustainability and ESG. Let's hear Sarah's chats with Jonas now in full. Yes, good afternoon, Jonas. It is a delight to have you on the podcast for our first podcast together with Lloyds. How are you doing this afternoon? Oh, hi, Sarah. I'm I'm fantastic. Thank you very much. Although it's uh, feels like a first proper autumn day here, but uh, very very glad to be here. Looking forward to this. Yeah, the temperature's definitely taken a a downturn. We were talking about all things um, electric blankets and thermos flasks um, off of off of this call. Um, and it was colder this time last year with the prospect of, of heading off to Glasgow. But I understand that it's going to be a lot warmer in, in Egypt. So there might still be a little bit of summer left for some of us. 
but yeah before we dig into all things COP I guess it'd be great to start with an introduction um, to yourself I understand that you've been in your role yeah fairly fairly short amount of time and it'd be great to hear a little bit more about what the managing director and head of sustainability and ESG financing yeah big long list of things for you to do. <laughs> yeah thanks Sarah uh, well let me start with the team um, the team was created in in April last year uh, and the core priority for for us was to service our clients on sustainability and EST specific matters. Uh, and prior to that, I think you know the way we did this was on, on the side of a desk activity. So it's a really a step change for us to do that. We're now 20 people in, in the team and growing. Um, for me, it was quite a natural transition, I would say. Um, I've been working with utilities, energy and infrastructure companies for the best part of two decades. But, but even I was, was quite overwhelmed by the exploding client needs, ranging from the structuring of green and sustainable funding, but also the need for guidance on you know, investment options, what, what good transition looks like, what regulation is coming, how companies can, can turn and transition in, into an advantage. Uh, there was and, and still is a, a really great demand for engagement collaboration, which is good. Perhaps what we did a bit different at Lloyd's when we created this team was that we decided we can't meet our clients' needs through our you know, a sort of tinkering of existing resources and experiences at the bank. And we really, to, really need to think about this differently. So we decided to bring in people with, with technical and practical skills from transition industries. And that has made a, an enormous difference for us as an institution, but perhaps even more importantly for our clients. And now we have an absolutely fantastic platform to build on, uh, and we are seeking to grow our capabilities further as our clients and the market's needs continue to evolve. Uh, and if you allow me to blow our horn a little bit, we are, we are getting some amazing feedback from our clients. So it's super comforting to know we are doing something right. I think it's slightly better than that. I think I call them the rock stars, but but I embarrass them when I do say that. Um, but the good news is that it encouraged us uh, to do more. So watch this space as we, we continue to, to develop our, our franchise and our capabilities. Great. And I look forward to learning um, some more about all of that as we continue to to work together. But as we've mentioned, this is our sort of COP primer episode. And to be honest, I feel like it would be remiss not to include a voice from the finance sector on a COP podcast, because when we went to Glasgow um, last year, there was a lot of focus on on finance. Um, Mark Carney's 130 trillion um, assets initiative, the GFANS got all of the headlines. There was a dedicated finance um, day. So before we look ahead, I guess it's worth looking um, back and seeing what the key takeaways were from last year's COP for, for Lloyds and how that's influenced your, your work. Yeah, it's that's a, that's a great, great question. Um, what really did come out loud and clear at COP26 was the, was the collective ambition, the energy and the commitment for membership states and, and companies to, to get to net zero. Uh, and as you said, Connie and others under the Glasgow Finance Alliance for net zero, of which Lois was actually a founding signature, made an absolutely brilliant case for putting finance right there at the centre with governments and business. And kind of making the financing community accountable for their role in the transition. 
and to focus on our disclosures and our net zero strategies for high emitting industries. Uh, and we've been living that process now for almost a year. And I can I can tell you it's it's not straightforward, but it really forces you to think about these things more strategically, how we best support our clients and industries through the transition. The other observ observation I made um, probably was the conversation has quickly moved on from the what, um, so in the level of ambition, to, to the how. And that includes what a credible transition plan uh, for the various sectors is. So think about it, you know, the a pathway to net zero for the aviation industry is totally different to that of the auto industry. And of course, it doesn't mean we should, you know, entirely exit the aviation industry just because the transition technologies are less developed than they are in the auto sector. Another associated point is that of the supply chain uh, with, with the scope three becoming the standard when setting science-based targets. It is, of course, inevitable that the large companies will start putting pressure on their suppliers so, so they too have to consider their operations and how they comply with such standards. I think the how also includes the need for a just transition, making sure uh, we are not leaving any communities behind. Throughout our business at Lloyd's, um, you know, in, in the UK, we have a huge footprint through our retail brands, uh, business and commercial divisions, and our insurance and pension division, and, and even our car leasing business. We, we touch almost every community and part of the economy. So we rightly should play an important role to deliver the house for the UK, absolutely focus on the transition plans, whilst also pivoting towards the regional development needs that exist in this country. And as a bank, we're aiming to achieve net zero for our own operations by 2030, that's, that's in the public domain, uh, but perhaps more significantly, and according to GFANS and NZBA, we're also committed to reducing our carbon emissions refinance to net zero by 2050 or, or sooner. But it's also important that we don't we don't intend to leave any clients behind that are committed to a credible transition plan. Uh, it is not called a switch for reason, and we really believe that every company have got the opportunity to make a credible transition um, during the period up to 2050, but we don't have much time. Of course, I think a lot of what you said there rings true. So we're obviously seeing a lot more on the focus of from the what to how people want to know, um, not just why should I set a net zero target, but what's a good one and how do I deliver it? And that's true in the private sector um, and in policy as, as well. I mean, if we can cast our mind back to this time last year, the government published a lot of green policy in a very short amount of time. Um, the overarching net zero strategy, the heat and buildings um, strategy, um, and then following that up this year with the energy security strategy. Um, and as you say, that is that example, as, as you say, finance in the centre with with governments and businesses. And these targets won't be met without, yes, yeah, some innovative finance um, going on. So, yeah, some finance going into these these new industries and new technologies and new approaches that you mentioned, Jonas. So I wanted to um, get a view on what, what Lloyd's is doing in that field. Yeah, you're right. It was a little bit overwhelming on the lead up to, to Glasgow with with a lot of uh, government policies or not policies, but actually commitments and and, uh, and white papers coming out that we had to all digest and consider how we can best service that. 
but but vanity is that this is the exciting bit. Um, in a net zero environment, it's it's sometimes easy to focus too much on things you should do less of. Uh, but the reality is that we have to do much more to support technologies that need to be scaled uh, before we can turn the top off fossil fuels. So effectively an orderly but very fast transition. That's what we're looking for. And to my earlier point, when we created the sustainability team at Lloyd's, we made sure that we brought in capabilities and insights that would allow us to better understand opportunities transition technologies could provide us. And we created a net zero origination work stream that really drills deep into these transition technologies, such as hydrogen, EV chargers, um, battery storage, electric buses, heat pumps, and, and so on. Um, and we had had some really great early successes in these areas. Uh, we, we hope to, to, to develop that much, much further. We have also focused on areas where we have particular relevance, um, and that's important in the, in the context of, of net zero. Um, and for us, that is areas like agriculture uh, and the built environment. And there are two sectors that are uh, notably very hard to abate. As an example, earlier this year, we published the Next Generation Housing Initiative together with Home England, JLL, and uh, UK Green Building Council. And that is effectively allowing house builders and, and indeed the, the public to better understand the benchmarking of the ha home builders and the new homes they built, um, as well as providing a, a sort of a framework of what best practice should look like. So plenty in there, uh, and we are hoping to really pivot a lot of our, our funding going forward to these sort of um, transition technologies. Yeah, it's as you mentioned, that is the exciting bit. I get I get interested to see news releases um, like that. And it's it's good to hear about, yeah, built environment, specifically a major source of emissions and yeah, a big focus mid yeah, energy pricing this year as well. Um, so we've we've taken a look back, we've taken a look at what Lloyd's is doing, but I guess as we come to the end of our call, Jonas, it would be worth looking ahead um, a few weeks to COP27 um, and get your views on what you'd like to see from and for the, the finance sector. So it's great to hear from speakers like Lloyd's that are leading of their own accord. But as we've talked about, these events can be a great opportunity to sort of raise the bar um, and make sure that even more people are doing doing this work. Yeah, it's um, it's it's exciting times. I, I do. Uh, looking back, I do hope banks will continue to demonstrate they are still very much committed uh, and not perhaps too distracted by other, uh, but also very important priorities like, you know, cost of living, spiraling energy and commodity cost. But but rather the opposite, I hope this will sort of be another catalyst for change and acceleration if you get it right. So, so certainly not an opportunity to take a step back, I'd rather take two steps forward if you can make that happen. There's been a, a great level of collaboration and learning since Glasgow, um, and I really hope that that also will continue. It is absolutely inevitable that we will face challenges, like the Ukrainian conflict, for example, or technology issues or policy things, geopolitical, whatever it is. There will be challenges throughout this this sort of pathway that we are we are on, but. Therefore, it's even more important. We don't slow down the transition as we try to solve them as quickly as possible. But one thing I hope to see more of, um, uh, and I hope I'm not, I don't think I'm alone in this, is to get some 
you know, new and, and clear and stable government policies, because we cannot really find clear investment path without having that nailed down. That is the sort of the core of everything we do as we invest in, in technologies. Finally, I, I, of course, like everyone else, I'd love to hear some really good news. <laughs> what has been delivered since Glasgow? Uh, you know, new technology breakthroughs, accelerated investments, you know, anything that makes us feel kind of excited about what we're doing, because we, I think we all get energized by, by good news stories. So that's certainly my, my final ask, and I'm really, really looking forward to that. Of course, I think, yeah, everyone here in the UK is after, yeah, some good news and some clear government pathways at the moment. So that's a great note to finish on. So thank you very much for your time on our COP Primer podcast. Thank you. Wow, uh, a lot of ground covered there in, in that chat. Thanks so much to Jonas and indeed to Lloyds Bank who have partnered with ED for this entire podcast series um, to champion sustainable business leadership. That brings us to an end of a bumper first part of this special episode of Sustainability Uncovered. We're going to be taking a very short break now, but don't go anywhere because when we return, we're going to be getting the Global South's view on the upcoming climate summit. Plus, I've just caught sight of a, a sustainable gift in the corner of the studio there because I believe it's someone's birthday this week. You are listening to Sustainability Uncovered and you've just heard our conversation with Lloyds Bank. The ED team are delighted to have partnered with Lloyds Bank for this new podcast series as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank work with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Welcome back to Sustainability Uncovered. I'm joined here still in the studio by Edie's Matt Mace and Sarah George. Now, guys, before we go anywhere, I've got a bit of a confession to make. Um, as you know, on top of this episode, I've indulged in telling everyone I've been away for the past week drinking pina coladas in Thailand, um, and I've fallen out of touch with, with sustainability news. So I was hoping uh, in under a minute that you guys could bring me up to speed on, on what's been happening and give me one kind of must-read climate story from the past week, which you've either written or read. Shameless self-promotion in this studio is, of course, welcome. Mm-hmm. So this is a bit off the cuff, but Matt, let's start with you. Give me your standout Susty story from the past seven days. Yeah, so it's um, less of a story, more of an opinion, more of a movement, but um, it, it's gone up onto the ED site uh, last week. Uh, it was an opinion piece from Simeon Rose, who's the creative director um, at the beauty product brand Faith in Nature. Um, and if you haven't checked out the product, I would also check out the website because... The way they articulate their story is great. Usually on a website you get a bit of a timeline, don't you? If we were founded then, they use a tree that gets oh, more, nice more rings as it goes. It's really clever. Um, but they, they pitched an op-ed to us, which was really great. It's all about um, environmental personalhoods, which is the idea of giving a non-human entity, in this case nature, a legal status and protections. And they've made nature a director on their board mm. through this. So they've got, in, as a first step, they've kind of got environmental lawyers that will be involved in decision-making processes. And it's all just about um, setting the business up so that nature is accounted for when they discuss their, um, when they discuss what they're doing. So for a, for a, a manufacturer that uses a lot of natural products, they put nature onto their boards and kind of legislated that as well. Fascinating. 
Oh, I've learned something there. That's really interesting. I'll have to check that one out. Um, right, Sarah, um, enlighten us with your standout Susty story. Yeah, I also have something that's about movement and mindset, really. Um, so I covered um, last week KPMG's CEO Outlook report. Um, and this year, one of the big questions was, amid the risk of a recession, are CEOs sidelining environmental, social and governance um, issues? And the overall finding was probably not. Um, there was a significant increase in demand for reporting on these issues, most businesses said, and most also believe that that will continue. Um, the main issue going forward will be tighter budgets, but more than that, also the fact that that will impact on people's time and staffing mm. levels. So to find a fuller answer to that question, um, amid the risk of a recession, our CEOs sidelining ESG, you can just Google that with ed.net mm. um, and read the story. <laughs> It was a shameless plug, but it was, yep. uh, yeah, and I, I, do you know what? I actually caught a bit of that story earlier, so um, worth checking out. Um, but I do feel more informed already being down in the studio, so go on holidays more often. Um, now, uh, in part one of this episode of Sustainability Uncovered, we heard the UK perspective on COP, uh, and then we delved into the topic of, of climate finance. Now, let's go a bit further afield and hear from uh, the other side of the world, the global south, for, for which this COP is, of course, absolutely crucial when it comes to mobilising finance and adapting and mitigating climate change and its impacts. Um, because, Sarah, you spoke with an Indigenous climate expert, is that right? I did. So um, a few months ago, I got an email about um, a report called Indigenous Climate COP, essentially comprising um, a sort of wish list um, for this year from Indigenous peoples from across the world. And one of the people that contributed to this report um, was Michael McGarrell. He's from Guyana and he's been working for years really to advocate for um, the, the rights of indigenous peoples, um, so to rights involving land rights mm. um, and water rights um, and knowledge transfer as as well. I've Someone described him in his biography as anything and all that he does um, is towards ensuring that these rights are protected and respected. Mm. Um, I, th I think that um, it's been said time and again that although the proportion of land covered by indigenous people now is minuscule a great proportion of the world's biodiversity um, is there mm. um, so it's absolutely crucial to make sure these voices are heard but time and again at previous cops um, there's been a feeling that they weren't mm. um, so very important to get that wish list for cop look back at what went well last year what didn't go so well and what the ideal situation would be for for this year in that regard mm. okay so michael mcgarrell an indigenous climate action coordinator from guyana can't wait to hear this one let's play it for you now in full michael it is a delight to have you on the podcast today thank you so much for dialing in um, I know we were talking about sort of where you are and what's going on today off call, but for everyone that's listening now on call, could you let us know a bit about where you're up to? I, I understand that you're in Guyana today and that for you it's the middle of quite a warm afternoon and, and for me it's a chilly autumn evening. <laughs> yes, uh, thank you, Sarah. Yes, I am in uh, Georgetown, Guyana. Um, it's the only English-speaking country in South America and many times people think you know it's somewhere in the Caribbean. Um, but beyond that, I am Patamona. I'm from one of the nine nations of indigenous peoples that live here in Guyana. Um, and I grew up in a community called Chinapau, which is located in the, the North Pakaraimas, uh, very close to the mighty Kaichiro Fall. Of course, we know Kaichiro by the name Kaitu, that's the original name of the fall, which is one of our sacred places as well. As a matter of fact, our most sacred place. 
for the maximum people they catch reform. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I understand that, that that it's yeah a busy season at the moment and that you're busy year round doing a mix of um, agriculture um, and community representation and and mapping. So what, what are you up to at the moment? Um, currently, so I just got back from a meeting of uh, Indigenous Peoples Leaders in the North Pakramas. Um, so what we're doing is working with uh, what we call district councils, um, discussing conservation areas, uh, mapping of our territory, the Patrimon and Makushi territory. Um, of course, we know that um, part of our land recognition, uh, we need to ensure that we have uh, proper maps and the current government maps do not provide adequate information on the lands which we have used um, for time immemorial. So uh, currently what we're doing is mapping those areas, um, ensuring we identify sacred sites, hunting grounds, farming grounds, fishing grounds, special places um, to us, the indigenous peoples, because many times, you know, persons may look at the government map and they just see a blank map, not knowing or understanding um, what it is that we are doing, what we are using um, those lands for. And many times they think, um, that we are asking for too much lands because they don't see how that land is being used and they think that um, it's too much for us as indigenous people. So for that reason, uh, we are in the process of mapping those areas, you know, having uh, community mappers, you know, people who know the ground as well to go out there and ensure that they um, have uh, names of creeks and special places, you know, it's all geo-referenced uh, so that it makes it very easy for us to advocate um, for our lands to be recognized by the by the government. Of course and I've been watching I know that sometimes when you're out and about doing this work that you produce vlogs and I've watched a couple before our calls and there was one that you put out in the last year or so essentially talking about I think what you called it was an invasion of extractive industries so as you say without seeing that on the map that sometimes land just gets gets taken um, and then we've also been talking off call about how our communities are also impacted by weather patterns changing due to climate so could you give us a flavor of of what is going on on the ground there for people like me that are listening um in in europe um i, I think one of the things is that many times uh, decisions are are made um, by persons sitting in our offices and uh, we have seen the the increase in the number of like mining concessions, for example, which are given out on lands which we know to be ours, um, which we have um, continued to use um, over time. And many times uh, these concessions and the concessionaires basically end up in conflicts with our people because, you know, they recognize those lands as theirs and they try many times to prevent our people from carrying out their traditional activities in those lands when we know those lands to be ours. Um, so we have seen uh, like mining concessions coming like rather close to our communities as well. And this in itself, you know, creates an atmosphere where it, it, it brings with it, you know, social problems. Um, it brings with it uh, environmental problems and so many other things. Um, in Guyana, we still use uh, for mining a lot of mercury and mercury is poisonous, you know, we know in other countries it's banned, but still here in Guyana, it's the it's the cheapest way to extract um, gold. And this in itself is problematic because many times the, the gold bearing places are upstream in the sources of, of rivers, rivers which you know our communities use uh, 
for fishing, for for bathing, for drinking, and uh, the pollution in itself, you know, will have long-term effects on our peoples. You know, it can cause them to become sick and mercury poisoned, and you know, it's it's all of these things that many times, you know, the miners really don't consider. All they're thinking about is getting the gold and you know getting the money um, but life in itself is not considered in this because our people many times we feel are considered like second class citizens you know like they're they're not a part of uh, what society is here in Guyana so it's it's pretty tough in that sense um, additionally in terms of the the weather patterns uh, changing it has negatively impacted our people because we live off the land and, and that makes it difficult for us because with the, the change in climate, it means, and the change in weather patterns more specifically, it means that the, the seasons for things are different. You know, the spawning seasons for fishes are different. It means we can no longer predict when they're gonna spawn. We can no longer predict when we should plant because we don't know when the rains are coming. You know, it just comes and there it just goes. So it's, it's harder for us as a people to continue to, practice what we would have uh, traditionally done for many generations, it's harder for us now because, of course, things have changed. Uh, yes, we will try to adapt as best as we can, but of course, you know, adaptation takes some time as well. And I think it's it's one of the things that, you know, needed to be considered by, by um, policymakers and in terms of discussions, having discussions in terms of how do we move forward? Um, Guyana is producing oil at the moment um, for a few years now, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, money is available, um, which the government uh, should consider in terms of how it is that we should use some of these funds to help mitigate, you know, some of the impacts. Because um, the whole oil industry, while it's offshore, I think what has been really, really damning for us, I would think, is that the amount of uh, gas that was flared, or that is being flared as well, and for the time, the period of time, it, it has been allowed to, to be flared by the company um, under the guise that oh, some uh, critical part was you know not functioning as it should. Um, one would have thought that a company as big as Exxon should have a replacement part readily available, but you know, it took more than a year before they could have brought another part in, um, which wasn't working properly again. So um, it, it, it's, it, it's really bad and really damning on us that we have allowed something like that to happen. And uh, this could only be because, you know, the, the government is looking to have revenues coming to the country. But then what, what do you do with that revenue? How do you compensate for, you know, the, the amount of gas that would have been flared? How do you compensate for um, the emissions that we would have released into the atmosphere as well? You know, Guyana has um what we have a low carbon development strategy but you know how does this strategy consider all of these things that i would have just mentioned um we can't really say we're low carbon when we are you know putting out so much uh, emissions into the atmosphere so these are all things that you know we, we need to think about i mean but i think i just went off from what we were talking with i just wanted to you know share that. no i think it's important i was i was looking at exports and key industries and how essentially even when I was born so we're talking less than 30 years ago the main industry was agriculture um, and now crude petroleum and gold have just massively 
um, overtaken that. And obviously that has climate implications, forest implications, social implications. And we're calling now with yeah less than a month to go um, until COP. But there are some other things I think we talked about off call as well. So essentially what could be agreed at COPs. Um, and I think we also talked about adaptation um, and, and finance. And what, what do you think we could could achieve there? In terms of financing, I think at the last COP, um, well, the rich countries were not very clear in terms of their pledges towards uh, financing. Um, but financing is really critical um, in terms of fighting climate change. Um, without financing, so many things cannot be done. And uh, we believe that there should be more direct financing, however, to indigenous peoples, um, because Many times, like large NGOs, you know, would get financing to different things, and lots of times, you know, those monies or those uh, resources do not reach to the to the grassroots where the financing is really needed. Um, we believe that if we have direct financing to indigenous peoples, we as indigenous can really contribute uh, towards the fight against uh, climate change. I know we have here in Guyana, for example. The, the Norwegian government, you know, a few years ago had an agreement with Guyana where they were paying Guyana some amount of monies um, so as to keep the forest standing. Um, we believe that even some of this can go directly to communities um, because in that agreement it went to the government and they, they determined how it was spent. But having this come more directly to communities, I think, you know, it can be more beneficial because they can see value as well. They can see how it is that you know um, them keeping their forest standing is really helping and contributing then to the the climate change fight and you know it can be um, something that encourages them to maintain their forest to keep their forest standing because of course as it is they already do but then you know it's now you you you, you see some sort of benefit um, from uh, well the rich nations in terms of how we can uh, fight the climate change um, additionally. Um, it can be used like for capacity building within communities as well, because of course adaptation is very much needed um, as things are changing. We need to ensure that um, we need to ensure that we can adapt effectively. Um, of course, we have our own ways of life. You know, we have our own customs and traditions. And as uh, climate change um, impacts us, you know, we have to try to adapt to the new. The new world, if you want to put it that way, and you know, sometimes it, it can be hard for us because you know we know what we know, we know one way, and you know, learning another way can take some time. So there is there is needs well for you know capacity building uh, in communities themselves so that they too can be um, come up to speed uh, with what is happening. Of course, and I think you mentioned um, of course something I'd like to wrap up with really. I, I think you mentioned that all too often when we talk about climate, we think about where sea levels will be and few years or pictures of polar bears but we don't think about food insecurity or poor human health or the fact that this poses a real threat to communities and cultures right now in the next few years um so i think that's so important to think about and thank you very much for coming on the podcast and 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 bringing that to light for us indeed and i wouldn't say in the next few years because you know it's it has already started it's here already where... Um, we are seeing uh, food shortages um, mm -hmm. as a result of maybe droughts or there's too much rain. You know, like for us, we depend on the cassava, um, which with too much rain, you know, it gets 
that's gets spoiled in the ground too much sun it gets very dry so you you really can't grow it so we we, we are facing it right now and like you know like i said earlier as well that Sometimes we only think about the rising sea level. I know Georgetown, for example, we will be affected here by the rising sea level, but that's all we hear about when we talk about climate change. You know, you you see it in school and school curriculum, but rarely you would hear people talking about how it's already impacting our indigenous peoples who live off the land, our indigenous peoples who live um, in the forest and the savannas, um, because they cannot plan effectively now because of course the weather patterns have changed and this directly um, impacts negatively their food security. You know, so it's harder to live now because I can no longer know when it's time for me to go plant my farm. I can no longer know when it's time for me to go reap what's on the farm because you know, it rains now, it suns now, like right now in the end it should be sunny, but we're still having rains some days, you know, like heavy rains, which shouldn't be happening during the, the rainy season. So. You know, I, I hope I um, enjoy talking with you and I, I know that, you know, there are people out there who you know, have, have have a feeling for what is happening around the world as well and who want to play a part in the fight against climate change. And I always encourage people, I say, you know, reconnect with nature. I think many times uh, people are disconnected and because of that, you know, they do not see and they do not feel the same way we as indigenous people um, would feel about how the environment, you know, how things are changing in the environment. And I tell people, you know, go out to the park, take a walk somewhere out, you know, of, out of the city, you know, go somewhere that you can experience some of what nature has to offer because nature is good to us if we are good to it, you know, but if we be bad, of course, we will reap the, what we sow as well. So reconnect with nature and, and embrace what it has to offer and you, you will begin to see things differently you will begin to understand and you will live a better life i think once you reconnect with nature thank you very much to, to michael for that fascinating perspective on the impacts of, of climate change and, and what role this cop can play in accelerating action there uh, now we're almost through this first episode of sustainability uncovered but uh, no ed podcast would be complete without bit of fun and games um matt i think it's the only reason you've driven in um, today because sarah before we walked into this uh, new podcast studio you mentioned that you had an idea for a, a special cop 27 themed segment uh, to close us off i what did I, I don't know if we have any radio one listeners listening but i did initially pitch sit down stand up but i thought that, that might not be um uh, that might oh, be a no. bit too low lowbrow I, I here. I mean, I we we could, we could, it's where you ring people and you ask, are you sitting down and standing up? And you compete <laughs> about it. So, for example, I'd be like, I'm going to ring Mike Barry. I bet that he's standing up. Um, but we won't be doing that. We're going to be doing a quiz, and this one is going to be called Top of the Cops. Um, essentially, I'll ask you five questions about numbers relating to cops. Whoever guesses closest will get the point for each question. Does that okay. all make sense? Okay, buzz in. No, no, no. We both, we both. You both have to give an answer, and then whoever is closest. Okay. Yeah. You have a pen, or you're just going to mentally, and I'll write down. I use my hands. I can't count past ten anyway. So. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the first question on today's top of the cops. According to a UN forecast pre-COP26, what percentage would global annual greenhouse gas emissions increase between 2019 and 2030? So before the Glasgow Pact. Mm -hmm. Answers on postcard, please. Matt, what is your percentage? Nine. I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of got lost halfway through that question, but yeah. Fifteen. 
on Luke takes the first point, it was 16%. So wow. you're both too optimistic. Okay. First Matt, a little how, many, bit. how many points are up for grabs? Five. Okay. Right. Question two. Question two. This one we probably should know. We were there. How many people attended COP26? I think I'm going to be so out on this one. Mm, that can't be right. <laughs> <laughs> go on then. You can go first. Oh, God, I think I've gone either way too low or way too high. 115,000. 115,000. Quarter of a million. <laughs> Again, I know it felt like a lot of people after um, working from home, um, but it was actually 38,457. Oh, wow. I was going to put 25,000 if I had a zero, so, to be safe. So somehow um, I've got that with 115,000. Yeah. Like, yeah, so yeah, Luke's okay. got it, but... Yeah, it's not the best point, wow. is it? It felt like 115,000 people were there, didn't it? It did, yeah. <laughs> It's the same people back and forth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, one of the big stories from COP26 was the launch of the Glasgow Financial Alliance on Net Zero from Mike Carney. How many trillions of US dollars was covered by that alliance? I reckon that's going to just know this one. Take that. Okay. Oh, actually, a number just come to my head. Okay. Go on. <laughs> 11. That's weird, I had 11 written, and I've just crossed it out and written 32. It's 130, so again, <laughs> Luke takes it. But I'm so not happy much. about it. Just, just um, the 100 trillion. <laughs> I mean, Luke's technically one, but I'm going to continue, especially given that those last two were cop-outs. Yeah, um, nice. um, nice. Yes, so um, next one is, how many parties contributed to negotiations last year? By parties, I mean countries or states. Come on. 192? Oh, yeah. I'll put 127, but I'm way low. It's 197, yeah. so Matt does finally okay. take a point. That was double, double points that round, wasn't it? And then the final one, this should hopefully be quicker. India set a net zero target at COP26. What was the deadline year? Oh, oh yeah. mm, I don't think that's right. But it's the first number that came to my head. Matt, your pen did stop moving first, so I'm going to have to come to you. 2045, it's not. No. 2070. Luke's correct on yes. that one. Oh, so we're out of five, but the one I was wrong on was a really bad one. Like Luke does that. take it, but unfortunately, yeah, you were quite far out, so really, really, mm. it could be two and a half points. Well, well no, we'll say, we'll say. But I don't have any more questions prepped, so we're just going to have to give it to Luke for this episode. Okay, a virtual round of applause to me. I feel like this could become a rolling theme then. So we're going to have to get the school board going and think up another competition mm -hmm. for us next week. Well done, Matt. It's a good game. Um, just need to make up numbers here. <laughs> well, clearly you can't. Yeah, just to make literally making up numbers. Okay, so um, before we sign off this episode, um, uh, I do actually have to point to the, this elephant in the room, which is this... Um, you referred to it as a reusable bag earlier, um, over there in the corner, Sarah. What's in the bag? What's in the bag? In the bag we have an early birthday present for Matt, who's taking oh. some leave later this week for his birthday. Um, and we have a pack of Brewdog's Planet Ale, an Easy Pale Ale. Nice, Brewdog. Yeah, this, this is, is not a blast from the past, isn't it, after yeah. your recent trip? And Thank that is the much. probably horrible sound of me sliding <laughs> in the beer. Yeah, nice and smooth slide, that was. <laughs> And, and obviously we couldn't have a birthday without cake, so I also have a vegan chocolate cake oh. from Just Love Food Company. Nice. Spoiled here, thank you very much. There you go, well happy birthday Matt. Yeah. Can we guess your age? It's uh, higher than COP, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, higher than COP. Edie runs in at 30 under 30, we're launching that quite soon, can you get into it? No, yeah, Sarah <laughs> said the other day when, uh, when 
when uh, our family house uh, staff walked in there about equations 30 and 37 so he was kind I was like oh I yeah I get that I, yeah. I, I, well I say I get that I used I'm to now, that, yeah, I know I forget for those 40 under 40 yeah, checks yeah, around I'm yeah. all for that now I remember when we had 30 and we first launched it and you'd get the oldies kind of going yeah. oh are you going to do now I am that person legitimately <laughs> wanting a yeah, kind of same. Um, anyway, well, happy birthday. Enjoy, your, much, enjoy, yeah. your, enjoy your drinking a cake. Um, Sarah, this is a strange thing to ask on a podcast, but did you bring a knife? No. Right, okay, we'll have to have this cake a bit later then. Um, now, uh, well, on the subject of 30 Under 30, actually, I just mentioned, I did want to give a very special um, Edie shout-out to our events producer, Jade Burnett, who's recently been announced in, into the Professional Publishers Association's 30 Under 30 initiative, so a huge well done to Jade, and I think we're going to be bringing her in um, to future episodes of the podcast. But right now, she's busy launching ED23, which is our, our flagship event taking place in March. The event website is now live. Um, it's event.ed.net forward slash forum. Event.ed.net forward slash forum. The event is ED23. Um, I must say it's shaping up to be our, our biggest and best event ever with some amazing names among the speaker lineup, many of which will be touching on similar topics um, to the ones we've discussed today. So do check that out. Matt, Sarah, uh, I would ask you at this point to, to tease us with what's coming up in, in future episodes of the podcast, but I'm, I'm not sure we've got much written down at this point. I think next yeah. episode, we're going to, the next big episode in the studio uh, might be from the uh, makeshift studio at COP27. We're still getting the accreditation to go along to that. In December, I think we're going to have a, a nature theme. It's, it's COP15, of course, around that time. And then somewhere in between there, we're going to be bringing back um, some special episodes, interview-based episodes, aren't we, Matt? Yes. <laughs> yes, we are. It's I, looking at me. I knew that. Yeah. In the green room? In the green room. Yeah. It's coming back. Um, and we actually have a green room now. Yeah. That's true, actually. Yeah. I yeah. That. yeah. So in the green room will be some uh, interview-based episodes, which Matt is learning as we speak that he's going to be doing um, over the next few weeks so lots to look forward to lots to stay tuned for that really is a wrap i must say a huge thank you to to matt to sarah to all three of our podcast guests who featured in this episode of sustainability uncovered and a special thanks to our podcast partner lloyd's bank we're going to be uh, tucking in some vegan cake now brewdog beers upstairs but until next time everyone it's uh, a goodbye from matt goodbye goodbye from sarah goodbye and it's a goodbye from me goodbye